Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Questions for Corbett. And this week on the D program, boy, do I have a data dump of information for you. So I hope you have a pen and paper ready uh, at your disposal and are prepared to take copious notes. But don't worry, I have you covered. As usual, the show notes for today's edition of the podcast will be particularly full of interesting information, so I hope you will go to corporatereport.com and take advantage of that resource. But let's get into the question. The question this week comes from a Corbett Report member who left his question in the Corbett Report comment section, specifically Magic Bullet, who recently wrote, is there a financial smoking gun of foreknowledge of corona before the first report of breakout in China? That would hint on the engineered versus natural birth of COVID-19, not just Event 201, but some stock trading or other transactions. All right, thank you very much for the question, Magic Bullet, and we're going to expand that answer out. I know you're looking specifically for financial foreknowledge, and I think there are a couple of interesting tracks, uh, tax to pursue in that regard, but let's expand it out to the broader question of foreknowledge of the coronavirus pandemic, because I think that really does speak to the potential, as you say, to really sort out the question of engineered versus natural birth of COVID-19. So I would start by saying, although, again, you're focusing on financial matters, so you say not just Event 201, but I want to caution against dismissing Event 201 lightly, because it does seem to me if there is a smoking gun to the coronavirus pandemic that we're experiencing right now uh, in a similar way that WTC7, for example, is a smoking gun on 9-11. I would say Event 201 is a smoking gun of what we're experiencing right now for a number of different uh, respects and, and reasons. And I don't say this lightly because, as you will recall from my conversation with Chuck Ocelli that I ha had a uh, month and a half ago at this point, or 18 lifetimes ago, it feels like, uh, I did say at that time, I know there's been pandemic planning going on for decades, so it isn't necessarily a smoking gun that they were talking about a coronavirus pandemic in October of 2019, exactly as the global coronavirus pandemic was breaking out. But having stewed on it and, and examined Event 201 in greater depth, uh, the more I look at it, the more it does seem like that smoking gun to me. Not just the participants that were there, for example, the Chinese CDC being involved in that exercise, despite the fact that the CAPS pandemic that they were simulating uh, was it broke out in, in Central America or South America. It, hadn't, it wasn't even about China, but for some reason, the head of the Chinese CDC and other players who are absolutely crucial to going on uh, to what's going on right now were involved in that exercise, which let's remember was hosted by the Center for Health Security, uh, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, which if you go to their website and note their uh, previous exercises, they have held a total of four exercises, one of which was Event 201, another of which was Dark Winter. Yes, that Dark Winter that simulated a smallpox attack, a bioterror attack on the U.S. in uh, June or, uh, yes, June of 2001, just a few months before the anthrax attacks of 2001. And as I've talked about before, just as Dark Winter blamed that fictional bioterror attack on uh, essentially the Iraqi government supplying Afghan terrorists or Afghan sheltered terrorists. So too did, of course, we see the U.S. government try to blame Iraq for the anthrax attacks of 2001. It was linked in the public imagination and they had wargamed it out in exquisite
detail in a two-day exercise held by the Center for Health Security just a few months before. Now we have Event 201, simulating a global coronavirus pandemic right before a novel coronavirus, or actually, as we are led to believe, just as a novel coronavirus was starting to spread around the world. So... Um, very interesting. And of course, the other two exercises that the Center for Health Security has participated in, Clade X and Atlantic Storm, held in 2005 and 2018, uh, deserve greater scrutiny. So perhaps uh, we will delve into that in more detail in the future. But as I say, I think Event 201 is a very good candidate for a smoking gun of foreknowledge of the coronavirus pandemic. So I, uh, I want to underline that, first of all. Uh, but when looking for other signs of foreknowledge, generally speaking, of the pandemic, I know you were looking specifically for financial foreknowledge, but before we get into that, um, just looking, ca casting our net broadly at the, the overall subject of foreknowledge, just again, just like 9-11, we have to be careful about limited hangouts that, through their very narrative, really reinforce the the official story of the event. So, for example, just as the presidential daily briefing, as we know, August, is it August 6th, 2001? I, I think I know that date off the top of my head, despite the fact I haven't even studied this in years. But because we've we've been told the presidential daily briefing, and what was that entitled? Oh, I think it was something like Bin Laden determined to attack the United States, says Condoleezza Rice. And that, of course, became one of those gasp moments. Oh, you see, they knew. They knew Osama Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were going to attack the United States. And that, of course, allows the main narrative to be implanted in the public consciousness so that you can say, oh, you see, the Bush administration were bumbling incompetent fools who allowed al or who, through their incompetence, uh, enabled Al-Qaeda to attack the United States, as opposed to, of course, the real underlying narrative of Al-Qaeda actually being equipped and functionalized and made possible through the U.S. intelligence agencies, which have been puppeteering them all along, um, which is the deeper level of that narrative that doesn't get presented in that limited hangout. So what's the what's the coronavirus uh, equivalent of that? It would be something like the story that, of course, did make quite a bit of news coverage when it was first going around a couple of weeks ago or three lifetimes ago. Um, for example, the BBC reporting coronavirus, U.S. senators face call to resign over insider trading, where, of course, we've seen, oh, there were some senators that were basically dumping stocks and uh, ahead of the a sense of the emergency in the United States. Obviously, after they'd been briefed about what was happening in China, etc., and how it was spreading, and etc., etc., and the implication being, yes, the senators were using their inside intelligence information basically to commit insider trading to get out of the stock market before it collapsed, which, again, let's, let's draw the parallel directly. Yes, this, again, is a way of reinforcing the narrative that, you know, no one knew, and it, and of course, the stock market collapses just about coronavirus, and these senators, look, it's these four senators that were using their inside knowledge from their government briefings, and that's about as far as it goes, which isn't very far when you think about it. So, although, again, it's something worthy of attention, but not that much attention. I think it's not the underlying story of this global pandemic and what's really what's really behind it. So we can get a little bit closer to something approaching the truth. Through this article, which I didn't mention recently, but I want to get into it in a little more detail right now, uh, Scott Ritter penned it, and it was uh, posted at the American Conservative up a couple weeks ago. It's called The Staggering Collapse of U.S. Intelligence on the Coronavirus. And he writes... 
It is the job of the U.S. intelligence community to provide senior U.S. government policymakers, including the president, with advance warning about potential crises. The U.S. taxpayer pays a premium for this service. In 2020, the budget for the National Intelligence Program, which includes all programs, projects, and activities of the U.S. intelligence community, was $62.8 billion. Included in this budget is a small, specialized intelligence unit known as the National Center for Medical Intelligence, which operates as part of the Defense Intelligence Agency. The mission of the NCMI is to serve as the lead activity within the Department of Defense for the production of medical intelligence and to prepare and coordinate integrated all-source intelligence for the DOD and other government and international organizations on foreign health threats and other medical issues to protect U.S. interests worldwide. Dot, dot, dot. Moving on. He says, moreover, by analyzing the characteristic of some 27 genomes of the COVID-19 virus provided by the Chinese and published by the Global Initiative on Sharing All Influenza Data, Influenza Data, research scientists were able to determine that the most recent common ancestor for the coronavirus could be dated back to as early as October 1st, 2019. The importance of this date as it relates to the NCMI is that in mid-October 2019, a delegation of 300 U.S. military athletes arrived in Wuhan to participate in the 2019 Military World Games. China has suggested that these personnel might have introduced the coronavirus infection to Wuhan, citing their own research that suggests that the virus was introduced into China from elsewhere, and Japanese and Taiwanese studies that point to the U.S. as the likely source of the virus. There is, however, no independent evidence to support these allegations. The importance of the U.S. military athletes rests in the fact that the NCMI is responsible for conducting threat briefs for all deployments of military personnel worldwide, which meant that a Wuhan-specific infectious disease risk assessment would have necessarily been prepared in support of this deployment. Infectious disease risk assessments are the bread and butter intelligence product produced by the NCMI's Infectious Disease Division, one in which the totality of the medical intelligence collection and analytical capabilities would be utilized. The production of a Wuhan-specific infectious disease risk assessment would have created a window of opportunity for the NCMI to have collected the kind of medical intelligence that could have provided early warning about the existence of the coronavirus. Moreover, these athletes should have been subjected to screening upon return as part of the National Biosurveillance Program, providing yet another opportunity for early detection of the coronavirus if anyone had been exposed to it during their travel. The CDC had recently acknowledged during a hearing of the Housing House Oversight Committee on March 11th that its biosurveillance program had uncovered influent, uh, evidence that Americans who had previously died to what had originally been diagnosed as influenza have, through post-mortem testing, been found to have actually perished from the coronavirus. Normally, the details obtained from this kind of biosurveillance would be widely shared to better understand the scope and potential spread of the infection, as well as to better pin down the source and timing of the infections. So, in this Scott Ritter article, essentially what he's saying is there definitely were detailed reports that were produced just as part of routine, uh, the routine duties of this NCMI unit that would have included specific uh, infectious disease risk assessment for Wuhan, would have in included biosurveillance of returning athletes from the Wuhan games that would have picked up any whatever kind of coronavirus may or may not have been circulating to the extent that it could have been picked up at that time. That would have been... There, there should, at, at any rate, there should be reports that are on record somewhere that will say something to that effect. Either they found something or they didn't or whatever, but that's data that, so far, 
at least when Scott Ritter wrote this article, well, we haven't seen that. It hasn't been released. You know, where where's what's happening? Um, which again does include certain parts of the mainstream narrative uh, embedded in it. The idea that this did originate in Wuhan uh, in October 2019, like uh, the the mainstream story has has it. But at any rate, it does involve specific documents that do exist and must exist out there somewhere that have something to do with this story and what was or was not known at what time, and also what may or may not have been covered up. Um, and of course, the Wuhan military games injecting another uh, possible vector into this whole story if we're t- talking about potential bio-attack of some sort. Again, as the Chinese government itself has even intimated. Um, I mean, things are getting serious when polite diplomatic speak is accusing other n- uh, nuclear superpowers of bioterror. I mean, these things are getting pretty crazy. But... Now, notice that in that story, there's a couple of different things. I mean, there's the sort of, there's the general, well, where was the NCMI in all of this? Or they asleep at the switch kind of uh, thing. And then there's the very specific uh, information about, well, they should have had reports on Wuhan and biosurveillance of these military athletes, etc. But that kind of gets to the wayside. And instead, the sort of, you know, what 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 was the NCMI report? Where, you know, where is it became, became the focus? And Actually, ABC, of all places, picked up on this. Intelligence report warned of coronavirus crisis as early as November, sources. As far back as late November, U.S. intelligence officials were warning that a contagion was sweeping through China's Wuhan region, changing the patterns of life and business and posing a threat to the population, according to four sources briefed on the secret reporting. Concerns about what is now known to be the novel coronavirus pandemic were detailed in a November intelligence report by the military's NCMI, according to two officials familiar with the document's contents. The report was the result of analysis of wire and computer intercepts coupled with satellite images. It raised alarms because an out-of-control disease would pose a serious threat to U.S. forces in Asia, forces that depend on the NCMI's work. And it paints a picture of an American government that could have ramped up mitigation and containment efforts far earlier to prepare for a crisis poised to come home. Analysts concluded it could be a cataclysmic event, one of the sources said of the NCMI's report. It was then briefed multiple times to the Defense Intelligence Agency, the the Pentagon's Joint Staff, and the White House. Wednesday night, the Pentagon issued a statement denying the product assessment existed. Etc., etc. So, again, let's put this in that sort of 9-11 framework. Again, this is like an intelligence failure, like the failure of the air defenses on 9-11, where... We had the systematic stand-down and misdirection and confusion of the air defenses that I've outlined in 9-11 War Games in great detail, which, oh, oops, oh, everything just happened to fail on the morning of September 11th in a way that made this incredibly unlikely thing possible. Well, now we're getting the the failure of intelligence uh, sort of narrative being painted with this global pandemic. The NCMI woulda, shoulda, coulda picked it up. Oh, maybe they did pick it up, but it's being covered up by the Trump admin because they're a bunch of bumbling fools. Again, I think we know where that tends to go. But, I mean, is there something closer to a smoking gun that would show, no, no, this wasn't an intelligence failure. It was failed on purpose. Is there anything that would point to that? Well, actually, there is. Uh, Trump ended pandemic early warning program two months before the globally spreading coronavirus pandemic began. Two months before the novel coronavirus 
probably began spreading in Wuhan, China, the Trump administration ended a $200 million pandemic early warning program aimed at training scientists in China and other countries to detect and respond to such a threat. The project, launched by the U.S. Agency for International Development in 2009, identified 1,200 different viruses that had the potential to erupt into pandemics, including more than 160 novel coronaviruses. The initiative, called PREDICT, P-R-E-D-I-C-T, it's an acronym, also trained and supported staff in 60 foreign laboratories, including the Wuhan lab that identified 2019 MCOV, the new coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Fieldwork ceased when the funding ran out in September, and organizations that worked on the PREDICT program laid off dozens of scientists and analysts. Dot, dot, dot. Later on in the article, they say the PREDICT project, launched in response to the 2005 H5N1 bird flu scare, gathered specimens from more than 10,000 bats and 2,000 other mammals in search of dangerous viruses. They detected about 1,200 viruses that could spread from wild animals to humans, signaling pandemic potential. More than 160 of them were novel coronaviruses, much like 2019 NCOV, now known as SARS-CoV-2. They also took blood samples from people in rural China and learned that in living among wildlife, they had been exposed to coronaviruses, a clear sign that if those viruses spread easily among humans, they could take off. That raised the red flag, said Mazet. Coronaviruses were jumping easily across species, uh, species lines and were ones to watch for epidemics and pandemics, she said. The program also trained nearly 7,000 people across medical and agricultural sectors in 30 countries in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East to help them detect new, deadly new viruses on their own. One of those labs was the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the Chinese lab that quickly identified SARS-CoV-2, as it said. The Wuhan lab received U.S. aid funding for equipment, and PREDICT coordinators connected the scientists there with researchers in other countries in order to synchronize tracking of novel viruses before SARS-CoV-2. The project's second funding cycle concluded on September 30th, 2019, less than two months before the new coronavirus probably began spreading. It was granted a $0 six-month extension through March 2020 to write up final reports. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? The very program that was looking for, supposedly, trying to identify these novel spreading coronavirus and other types of viral threats, uh, just was completely shut down. Its uh, funding ended on September 30th, 2019, and from that point on, it was just writing reports based on uh, outdated information. So, literally, September 30th, 2019, literally the day before we are told... Uh, according to that Scott Ritter article, that uh, scientists were able to determine that the most recent common ancestor for the coronavirus could be dated back to as early as October 1st, 2019. Well, here you go. September 30th, 2019, they stopped looking for the thing, and on October 1st, 2019, it appeared. And we'll get into how unlikely that is, considering how unlikely this SARS-CoV-2 supposedly is to have naturally evolved. But at any rate, Pretty interesting. And oh yeah, then two weeks later, you have, on October 18th, the start of the Wuhan Military Games and Event 201. So it, it's starting to get to the point where you would have to be a crazy coincidence theorist to think there is no fire behind all this smoke. Oh, it's just all of these things just happen to line up at the exact same time. Wow, what an, what an incredibly unlikely and incredibly unfortunate series of coincidences to take place all bada-bing, bada-boom, all together, right? So, okay, 
Anyway, as I say, all of that can be fit into some sort of limited hangout narrative that still supports a lot of the official story, but does raise some very interesting questions that will at least get people thinking about the unlikelihood of some of the things that we're being asked to believe. Let's turn back to Magic Bullet's question specifically on the financial foreknowledge, uh, to which some of the Corbett Report commenters had something to say. For example, Animals Aren't Food wrote, In my opinion, the CEOs that step down are a strong indicator of foreknowledge of a pandemic. Up to that point, absent psychic powers, there was no way any one of those CEOs could have predicted an un- upcoming catastrophe to such an extent that they'd, they'd be willing to step down. And M.I.K. Mick adds, I think almost crash of repo market into September 2019 is smoking gun. Uncle Sam wouldn't be able to get money if Fed didn't intervene at the time. Uncle Sam unable to get money in nowadays system means sky is falling down. Okay, so a couple of good points here. Um, Firstly, yes, indeed, as Animals Aren't Food points out, there was an unprecedented number of CEOs resigning, not just in 2020, but in 2019. You don't have to step far out on a conspiracy theorist branch for that one. You can even go to NBC, which was reporting in November of 2019. Why have more than 1,300 CEOs left their post in the past year, noting the absolutely unprecedented levels of CEOs' resignations that were taking place at that time throughout 2019. Uh, And that trend only accelerated from there. So by the time you get to February of 2020, you have CCN reporting uh, CEOs quitting in record numbers could signal total stock market collapse. Well, here we are. Now, of course, part of that is past that window um, that we're talking about here, where Clearly, by January, February of 2020, it was quite obvious to people who were in positions to understand the global supply chain, etc., that a major economic disruption that could precipitate into complete stock market chaos and a global economic collapse, which is exactly what we're seeing, could play out. So you didn't exactly have to be psychic at that point, although obviously they were getting out when still there was relative calm. Oh, everything's okay, uh, as we plunge into the Great Depression. But in 2019, certainly no one was expecting what is... Well, I mean, people were expecting what is happening now. It's just not because of a globally spreading coronavirus pandemic, right? Right? Well, it's foreknowledge of some sort, I would say. The fact that an unprecedented number of CEOs were resigning last year, uh, right before the Greatest Depression. But circumstantial at best. And again, case-by-case basis. Some of the resignations, I'm sure, were significant, some of which were probably not significant. I mean, certain a certain number of CEOs will resign in a given year, and you could nitpick that and blah, blah, blah. You're not going to change anyone's mind with that piece of information. More to the point, as MIK points out, the repo market, the repurchase agreement market, was going haywire in September of 2019, which... Hopefully you know something about it. If not, you should go back to the article that I wrote about it uh, for the newsletter back in October of last year where I talked about QE4, uh, which was beginning at that time, and I explained it at that time. But as recent Corbett Report guest John Titus points out in one of his most recent videos, that point in September of 2019 was when the Fed began adding to its balance sheet again after trying to pare it down over the 
course of a year or two, suddenly the balance sheet started rising again to the tune of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, now now well into the trillions of dollars. But that was when the Fed started its interventions, and that shows that the craziness that started to play out with, uh, it, certainly in recent weeks cannot be blamed 100% on coronavirus shutdowns. No, there was major activity happening in September of 2019. So what I'm scrubbing over now is the balance sheet of the Fed between late 2002 and the gray bar, which is the onset of the financial crisis. And one thing that you can see there very clearly is that the balance sheet never goes over uh, during that time over a, a trillion dollars. It's under a trillion dollars that entire time. What you can't see there is that the assets on the balance sheet at that time are almost entirely U.S. Treasuries. Okay, That changes. That and the amount both changed during the financial crisis. And you can see here, this is September. This is the Lehman Brothers explodes and, and blows up, and the balance sheet goes with it. Two things changed at that time. One, the balance sheet goes up a lot. And two, the Fed begins taking on things other than U.S. Treasuries onto its balance sheet. In particular, it begins to buy lots of mortgage-backed securities. It buys other things too, but the mortgage-backed securities are the big one. Okay, the next thing that goes on is that you see the balance sheet continues to rise at the, up to $4.5 trillion. I happen to know that it hits a it hits a high of 4.516 on January 14th, 2015. Um, that was a temporary, that was the high until recently. And um, the balance sheet keeps, keeps rising, notice, even though the financial crisis is supposedly over, the Fed's just packing more and more and more assets onto its balance sheet. And it is printing up reserves. Uh, the banks, in, in exchange for those reserves, supply assets to the Fed. And those assets, as I say, it are mostly U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities right there, but also some other stuff. Now you can see here, in beginning of 2018, the Fed begins to produce its balance sheet. It is selling U.S. Treasuries, selling mortgage-backed securities. Really what it's doing is letting those assets roll off and not buying any more of them. But the point is the Fed begins to roll down its balance sheet. It begins to reduce its balance sheet, trying to get its balance sheet back to normal. And then you can see that in September, September 11th, September 18th, um, the, the balance sheet begins to rise again. I'm going to blow this up so we can see it better. Yeah, September 18th. This here, starting on September 18th, this is when the New York Fed enters the repo market, repurchase agreements. The New York Fed enters the repo market um, and it drives up the balance sheet slightly, well, in retrospect, it's quite slight. At the time, it seemed to be a big deal. Um, and notice that this is well before anybody has heard of any coronavirus. So the balance sheet has already started to tick up appreciably well before we hear of coronavirus. Once again, that's John Titus of the Best Evidence Channel asking the question, why is the Federal Reserve lying about coronavirus? And make no mistake, the Federal Reserve is lying about coronavirus, like when it told us in its Ides of March, March 15th, 2020 press release that the, uh, the current craziness and the injections of trillions is going on specifically to deal with coronavirus and specifically to help Main Street 
deal with the global economic shutdown. That's a double lie because as John Titus pointed out in that video and in our subsequent follow-up conversation, which I hope you have seen by now, no, this money is not going to help out Main Street, demonstrably so. And secondarily, no, the trillions that they are now injecting didn't start in the wake of the coronavirus crisis. No, it started before this current pandemic freakout began, identifiably, demonstrably, documentably in September of 2019. Once again, I did write about this in the newsletter last year, uh, on in my editorial, Everything Gold is New Again, What QE4 Means for You. So I would suggest if you haven't seen that yet, you go and read that or reread it um, to remind yourself of the fact that QE4 did again start in September of 2019. It was identified as such by many, many people, although the Fed insisted this isn't quantitative easing, guys. It's something totally different. Uh, but I'll let you judge that for yourself. And I'll also just advise you that there are multiple other uh, interesting things that were taking place at that time, including the Dutch Central Bank, which was uh, warning of a systemic collapse and talking about how gold reserves could uh, serve as a, a basis for rebuilding the system after it collapses and other such tectonic financial events that were taking place in the fall of last year, to the point where one can conclude that if some sort of global coronavirus pandemic freakout or some other type of international crisis necessitating the shutdown of the global economy didn't exist, that they would have to invent one to cover up the, uh, the fact that this system, which has been designed and engineered to ultimately collapse, the Ponzi scheme that they're running, is finally coming to an end. Uh, but it's because of some black swan that we could never have predicted, right, guys? So this isn't direct uh, evidence of foreknowledge of a pandemic per se, but it certainly is. Uh, it does line up to that that broader theme that we are examining today of various ways that either this was uh, understood that some sort of international crisis was going to come or using that international crisis as a cover for other agendas. Let's move on to another form of this foreknowledge Um question surrounding the pandemic, And I, again, this steps out of the boundary of the strictly financial realm that Magic Bullet was asking about, but I think we should put all of these pieces on the table while we're examining foreknowledge and the question of foreknowledge. So of course, one of the most important aspects of this question of foreknowledge, well, if there is this coronavirus pandemic that really is spreading around the world, well, did scientists know about it beforehand? Could they have predicted it beforehand? Well, they certainly did on numerous occasions. That's why, for example, Event 201 was ostensibly being held, is because scientists knew there was going to be the emergence of some new disease X, as they literally called it in a lot of their pandemic planning scenarios, disease X. Uh, how did they know? Well, maybe because they were working on it. They were literally engineering something like this in various laboratories, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They were specifically working on this type of uh, human spreading, uh, SARS-like, bat-derived bat cluster of coronaviruses, <laughs> and had been for many years in something called gain-of-function research, which has been funded to the tunes of many hundreds of millions of dollars by various governments around the world over the past decade or two, and is totally defensive, guys. Don't worry about it. See, scientists are just going to find the different ways that these virus viruses, viri, can be engineered in a lab to more effectively kill people or to more 
more effectively transmit among the population? What kind of spike proteins have to be added in what combinations? What kind of genetic sequencing do we have to do to make it so that this will spread more efficiently or it will have a longer incubation period so people can spread it more before they even realize they have it? What, what you know, just totally defensive guys just so that we know how what this would look like and maybe we can work on vaccines beforehand don't worry nothing to worry about and uh we get this for example from nature medicine which had a november 2015 article a sars-like cluster of circulating bat coronaviruses shows potential for human emergence where they note about the research the gain of function research that was going on amongst bat coronaviruses to look for, well, what would a SARS-like bat coronavirus that was spreading through the human population, how would that work? And what would be the most efficient way for this to, to happen? And all of these questions. Uh, a number of th important things to note about this. Uh, for one, of course, one of the people working on this was Zheng Li Shi, the key laboratory of special pathogens and biosafety at Wuhan Institute of Virology researcher for the China Chinese Academy of Sciences. That's interesting. Another interesting person involved with this is Ralph S. Berrick, someone who deserves some looking into and his connections to this type of gain-of-function research. But beyond the researchers themselves and the fact that, yes, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was involved in uh, in deriving and sequencing and, and uh, studying these bat coronaviruses, it also has some interesting uh, revelations about the fact that in 2015, when they wrote this article, there were essentially two main paradigms of thought in the scientific community about how these bat coronaviruses could emerge into the human population. And it says in this article, which is highly technical, I understand it's not for laymen, but it does have this passage, which I think is important. It says for both paradigms, i.e. both of the different theories that were circulating in the scientific community at that time about the ways that this bat coronavirus could emerge into the human population, spike adaptation in a secondary host is seen as a necessity with most mutations expected to occur within the RBD, thereby facilitating improved infection. Both theories imply that pools of bat coronaviruses are limited and that host range mutations are both random and rare, reducing the likelihood of future emergence events in humans. I.e., well, it's not really that much of a looming threat that could strike at any time because it's extremely rare. Uh, it's the kind of thing that would probably only ever emerge in a laboratory. Of course, in that uh, paper, they go on to uh, propose a, a third, a different paradigm by which, no, these spike protein adaptations are already there and they just have to circulate in the right way to get into the human population, which is now, of course, what they're going with. But even at the time... Even at that time, even Nature magazine itself was warning about this research that it was publishing. Uh, it, just a week after the publication of that article, Nature uh, published this one. Engineered bat virus stirs debate over risky research, noting the very real dangers of this type of laboratory-engineered virus research that was going on at that time. And noting, for example, quote, an experiment that created a hybrid version of a bat coronavirus, one related to the virus that causes SARS, severe acute respir respiratory syndrome, has triggered renewed debate over whether engineering lab variants of viruses with possible pandemic potential is worth the risks. In an article published in Nature Medicine on 9th of November, scientists investigated a virus called SHCO14, which is found in horseshoe bats in China. 
the researchers created a chimeric virus made up of a surface protein of SHCoV-14 and the backbone of a SARS virus that had been ad adapted to grow in mice and to mimic human disease. The chimera infected human airway cells, proving that the surface protein of SHCoV-14 has the necessary structure to bind to a key receptor on the cells and to infect them. It also caused disease in mice, but did not kill them. Virologists question whether the information gleaned from the experiment justifies the potential risk. Although the extent of any risk is difficult to assess, Simon Wayne Hobson, a virologist at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, points out that the researchers have created a novel virus that grows remarkably well in human cells. If the virus escaped, nobody could predict the trajectory, he says. The only impact of this work is the creation in a lab of a new non-natural risk, agrees Richard Ebright, a molecular biologist and biodefense expert at Rutgers University in Piscataway, New Jersey. Both Ebright and Wayne Hobson are long-standing critics of gain-of-function research. But don't worry, guys. You're just a crazy conspiracy theorist if you think there is anything worth looking into here, because nature itself has once again come forward to assure us that this has nothing to do with SARS-CoV-2. Don't worry, guys, because they've added an editor's note to that very uh, article that they published in November 2015 warning us about the, the dangers of this risky bat coronavirus research by saying, we are aware that this story is being used as the basis for unverified theories that the novel coronavirus causing COVID-19 was engineered. There is no evidence that this is true. Scientists believe that an animal is the most likely source of the coronavirus. How many, how many weasel words and sentences do they have there? There is no evidence that it's true. Scientists believe an animal is the most likely cause source of the coronavirus. <laughs> Again, a lot of different outs for when uh, and if they discover something different many years down the road. Um, but we don't have to go out on that speculative limb. Uh, because although there has been a, 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 a not an explanation, but a sort of theory for uh, for the origins of SARS-CoV-2 published in, of course, once again, Nature Medicine in March of 2020, specifically the proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2, where they do try to make the argument that, uh, well, this couldn't, this couldn't be lab engineered because of X, Y, and Z. Well, if you want a detailed and a very persuasive breakdown of why X, Y, and Z are is total cockamamie horse hooey, uh, I would definitely suggest checking out a couple of very interesting articles from Harvard to the Big House, which are very detailed, very scientific, very learned, obviously written by people with scientific expertise, but also containing colorful expletives and metaphors and what have you. So it's an interesting read in a lot of different respects, but certainly for debunking this proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2. The articles are China Owns Nature Magazine's Ass, debunking the proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2, claiming COVID-19 definitely wasn't from a lab, and No Monkey Ever Reheated a Frozen Burrito, what the expanse tells us about the COVID-19 pandemic and serial passage gain-of-function research, which, despite the whimsical titles, I, I guarantee you are very detailed and very interesting articles with lots and lots of links and different sources that need to be investigated on this. But essentially, it does break down to the fact that the very scientists involved in this gain-of-function research, which other scientists have been ringing the alarm about, ringing the warning bell about, saying they're creating new non-natural threats in these laboratories, 
uh, are now the very scientists that are coming out and saying, don't worry, this couldn't possibly have come from a laboratory. <laughs> and there's a lot of very specific scientific reasons why what they're saying is not factually true. I will leave that to you to uh, investigate uh, further, and I'm sure we'll be circling around to this topic many times in the future. But this does certainly raise yet another question in the was there foreknowledge of the pandemic question scenario. I mean, assuming there is a globally spreading novel coronavirus, the question of could scientists have possibly predicted it kind of gets superseded by the question of was it created in a laboratory? Um, and there are, well, there's certainly the, the reasons they say that couldn't possibly be true are debunked nonsense. Uh, the, the question of whether it is true, again, there needs to be a lot more research on that, but who are you going to turn to for the research? The people involved in the gain of function research whose entire careers, entire, everything they do and everything that they stand upon and their entire place in society rests on them not being the spreaders of some globally spreading super virus, whatever you make of the novel coronavirus and the hype surrounding it at the moment. Um, anyway, it's an interesting question, but we should just add one other tiny piece to this puzzle. It's, I'm sure it's not important, guys. Don't think too deeply about it. But we should note that that original November 2015 um, study about the bat coronaviruses, SARS-like cluster of bat coronaviruses that that uh, that caused that kicked off all that controversy. We should note that they Nature did have to append a little correction to that article after it was published. Namely, in this version of the in the version of this article initially published online. The authors omitted to acknowledge a funding source. USAID EPT predict funding from EcoHealth Alliance to ZLS. The error has been corrected for the print PDF and HTML versions of this article. And ZLS, of course, is Zhengli Shi, that Wuhan Institute of Virology researcher, who, yes, to make that explicit, was directly receiving funding from USAID predict i.e. the PREDICT system, which was shut down in a late September of 2019, right before the novel coronavirus emerged, the very thing it had been set up to be the early warning for, uh, and they this funding was just omitted from that, that virus research when it was first published, for some reason. There are so many different angles to this that it becomes overwhelming, but I think it's pretty safe to say that if you find anything of interest in all of these myriad different connections, then you're a crazy conspiracy theorist and must be shunned from society for not trusting the scientists. Which scientists? Oh, the ones that we tell you to trust. The ones that are being funded by these various agencies. And uh, Again, the craziness upon craziness upon craziness just continues to pile up. And there's we've really only scratched the surface here, but I hope this goes some way towards at least providing a bit of research that you can follow up on if you are curious about this question. Was there foreknowledge of the pandemic? I think it's certainly leaning that way, but I'll leave you to come to your own conclusions about that. Uh, anyway, thank you for broaching the topic, Magic Bullet. I know specifically you were asking about financial um, foreknowledge, and I'm sure there are many other things to say on that that we'll have to come back to in the future, but I did want to get this question of foreknowledge out on the table today. And as always, I do encourage the Corporate Report community to chip in with your own research, anything that adds to what uh, has been put forward here uh, today or contradicts it or anything else, please leave it in the comment section of this post on CorbettReport.com. It is through this open source investigation piecing together information from a million different sources that we can ever hope to get 
closer to approximating the truth on a vastly complicated subject like this one. That all being said, and this doozy of an episode, let me remind you, the show notes for this video will include all of the links to all of the things that I've just cited. So uh, there's a lot of research there to be had. I hope you will take advantage of it. That's going to do it for today. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the very near future. The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support.